Our New Testament reading today is from Hebrews chapter 9. It is 23 through 28, and it's also our sermon text for today. So for those of you who have not been following along in this series or who may have a little COVID brain fog, I want to give it a little context. Um, the author of Hebrews here is making a connection for the Hebrews to whom he is writing, who we read about in the Old Testament as the Israelites, that all of what God provided for them in the covenant and the law through Moses, all of those um, like laws and, and ceremonies and specifications for the temple, um, which for them were a provision, um, for me are kind of the parts of the Old Testament that threatened to derail my annual reading plan, um, that even those parts are pointing us to Christ. They are pointing us to God's um, relentless love and provision for us. And this passage makes that connection so beautifully for us. Starting in 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. And now for our gospel reading from Luke chapter 2. A little bit uh, from the the life here of the real thing. Now, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him 
were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. He said to them, Why, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying he spoke to them. And he went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the gospel of the Lord. See the confession of sin on the next page. It's a little good morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Shape us. Turn our eyes toward you, Lord, as we wait upon your return. Give us ears to hear your word today. Speak through me. And Lord, build our faith that our eyes would be turned to you toward the heavens every day as we wait eagerly for you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, As Christy said, it's been a while since we've been in Hebrews. It's been uh, back in December, I guess. Um, It's good to get back into it. Um, This morning, we're kind of just dealing really with a very uh, small section of chapter 9, just toward the end. But remember, the author was describing throughout the tab, you know, last time we did this, which was, I think, uh, early December, we talked about the tabernacle, Talked about the tabernacle furnishings, the menorah, the table of incense, the, or I'm sorry, the table of showbread and the altar of incense. And then there was that barrier. The thing he was pointing out was there was this barrier between God and his people in the old covenant. That barrier that was separated by a veil into the holy of holies, that holy place that only the high priest would go and that would happen only once a year during the Yom Kippur or the day of atonement. When he would enter in. And the author also reminds us that the things of the old covenant, this tabernacle, the priests, the furnishings, the holy places, these were all copies. They were all shadows. They were all things looking ahead, pointing to the real. But he's also continuing to demonstrate how Christ is superior to all of those copies, that he is the real. He enters into the real most holy place, heaven itself. He contrasts these heavenly things with things made with hands, which is kind of a pejorative term. He's, he's saying, it's like, are you going to, you know, these things made with hands versus the heavenly things, the things that God himself made. He contrasts the sacrifices in verse 23, the sacrifices, the, the copies and the real sacrifices. And later he contrasts the priest's work of many times. You hear that? The contrast of many times, many offerings in every year versus Christ's work of once. 
Once is the theme in the last three verses of this passage. Once. And you'll see that repeated. Excuse me. But just as the high priest would enter the most holy place into that holy of holies on Yom Kippur, on behalf of the people, even more so, Christ entered the heavenly most holy place, a tabernacle not made with hands at all, but it was the real place, and he entered by the real sacrifice, his real blood, the blood of the Lamb, the only blood that was going to pay any price, that was going to do what God had intended it to do, cover our sins, as we saw, as we read in the scriptures, and as we sang in our songs. So remember, he's speaking to Hebrew Christians. That's why it's called Hebrews. He's speaking to Hebrew Christians who were well aware of the primacy of how important this Day of Atonement was and how important the sacrifice of this annual Day of Atonement was to cover the sins, to atone for the sins of the people. And you could find this day in Leviticus 16, by the way, and and see the details of what the priest did on the Day of Atonement. But one Jewish writer describes what this day might have been like when he said later in the day, he's talking about the Day of Atonement here, he says later in the day the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies carrying a vessel filled with blood. This would happen three times. And with great fear and trepidation, the high priest entered through the veil and into the most holy place. The priests and the worshipers watch anxiously as this was the last they would see of the high priest until he either reemerged, meaning God has accepted his sacrifices, or the high priest never came out, meaning he had been struck dead. The sacrifices of the people then would be rejected by the Lord and the people would now be forced to live in their sin until next year at this time. It's even said during the second temple time, after the, the, the Israel was came out of captivity in Babylon, during uh, the time of Ezra and Nehemiah when they rebuilt the temple, that second temple, it said that they would they started tying a rope to the high priest in case he died. Then they could pull him out because nobody else could go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. So this Day of Atonement, it was a great day. Yom Kippur was a great day. It was a great celebration. But when that priest went in, all was quiet. All was quiet because there was a waiting. Everyone's eyes on the tent. Anxiously. Eagerly. Hoping to soon see their high priest come again to declare, to come out of the Holy of Holies, declare that the sacrifice was accepted. Atonement. Atonement for all, but only for another year. It was temporary. Some commented on the glorious appearance of the priest when he emerged from the Holy of Holies. That the people waited, and there was a glorious appearance to the priest as he comes out to declare atonement for God's people. They were waiting for their hope. And that, that hope, you know, I think about it, and, and that waiting was probably, as he went into the Holy of Holies, maybe an hour, a couple hours. I, don't, I really don't know. But think about this. As, as the people of Israel saw the high priests leave them and go into that most holy place, so Christ left us. So Christ left us and entered into the heavenly holy place. 
When did he do that? We see this in Acts 1. When Christ ascended to the Father, and there's two men standing by the apostles as they're looking up, all Jesus' disciples are looking up as he's taken up. And they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken away from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back. He's coming back. So we wait. We wait for our great high priest, our Savior, the risen Savior, who will now return from that holy place to save his people. The gospel is, is, is about waiting. It's good news now, but it's also good news to come. We just celebrated this Advent season, which was celebrating 400 years of waiting for the birth of the Savior in Bethlehem. And now we wait for the return of our risen Savior, of that same baby who grew up to be our risen, conquering Savior. But while we wait... We deal with all kinds of things, don't we? We wait, dealing with a, with a culture that, that is counter-Christian, a culture that really pushes against waiting for anything supernatural, a culture that pushes against anybody looking for answers from beyond. We're looking for a Savior. We also struggle with our own feeble faith sometimes, don't we? We struggle with faith that is 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 been feeling like we've been waiting so long. Can I wait any longer? And I think about our culture and how our culture pushes back against the Christian belief of a coming savior. I think about this great this this play that was written in 1952, post war. So when things in in Europe were destroyed, were just ransacked after World War II, and this this playwright named Samuel Beckett. You might know of this play. It was a play called Waiting for Godot, or Godot, depending on who you are reading or listening to. Written in 1952, the playwright Samuel Beckett wrote this very odd play that centers around two main characters, Vladimir and Escargon. In the play, they call each other Didi and Gogo. If you're familiar with the play, then you know it's full of dialogue. Anybody ever seen it or heard of it, read it? Okay, good, good, good. Um, you're familiar with it then, and you know that there's this ongoing dialogue, and it's a very plain stage. They, they're, they're, they meet on an abandoned road. There's just this barren road, and there's a tree, a dead tree behind them, and that's, that's the props. And these two are going through this dialogue, but the dialogue is meaningless, Absolutely meaningless. It's, it's, it's frustrating listening to him. Any attempt at any meaningful conversation fails. And it fails due to some distractions, interruptions, or just constant forgetfulness. You'll hear things like, let's go. Well, we can't go. Well, why can't we go? Well, because we're waiting for Gatto. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's happening constantly. We can't go. And there's a constant, there's a constant forgetfulness. The play actually ends without any resolution. In fact, it ends both scenes, there's two scenes, and both scenes end with the two men, Didi and Gogo, saying, okay, let's go, and they just stand there. All of it is pointless. 
There's a point where they are, they're, they're, there's a young boy who comes up and, and he's the messenger for Gatto. And he says, Mr. Gatto is coming tomorrow. They say, okay, we'll, we'll be here. And Gatto never shows up. The next, the next scene, same thing happens. The, the messenger boy comes out. He's going to come tomorrow. And he never shows up. There's a point toward the end where Didi and Gogo want to hang themselves on the tree. And they just speak about all this stuff very casually. Just very casually. Well, there's a tree. Let's hang ourselves. He says, well, take off your belt because we don't have a rope. And, and they try to pull it and it breaks. And they're like, Gogo says, I can't go on like this. Didi says, that's what you think. It's full of boredom and meaningless chatter. So who is Gado or Gado in this play? According to one commentator named Nick Mount, he says, we are all waiting for Gado. We're all waiting for a hope, for an answer, a reason for what we do, a reason for enduring life on this earth. Beckett never really defined Gado, but I think this nails it. Gado is for everyone who is waiting for something in Beckett's eyes. And what we see in this, in this play is nothing but boredom, waiting, passing time. One other character in the play named Pazzo, he gives a little speech and he says this about life. He says, we give birth astride the grave. And Didi builds on that. He says, astride the grave and a difficult birth, down in the hole lingeringly, the grave digger puts on the forceps, the birth forceps. The air is full of our cries, yet habit is a great deadener. It's all about just doing to kill the time. So for Beckett, existence itself is meaningless. There is no purpose, no answer, no hope, and no reason to look for hope. Now, I know this is post-war, but this kind of talk has been going on forever. In fact, there's an Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, of the Pentateuch, in which in, in, in Genesis, they insert a dialogue between Cain and Abel, where Cain is saying, there is no judgment, there is no judge, and there is no other world, and there is no giving of a good reward to the just, and there is no retribution exacted from the wicked. So you see, Beckett wasn't saying anything new. But what this play communicates is that the one life we live, the one life you and I are living right now, is only spent waiting for death. Waiting for an end. Waiting to die. Because there is no hope. Now, that's not what the gospel says, though. That's not what the author of Hebrews is saying today. He is saying there is hope. He's saying that Christ provided the hope through what he did on the cross. And that's the good news of this great high priest. As he says in verse 26b, But as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away, to annul, to annihilate sin by the sacrifice of himself. So you see in today's text, we see our author reminding the Hebrews that because our great high priest sacrificed himself for our salvation, we can trust that he, number one, he appointed our life. He even appointed our end. And he appointed 
our hope. Our hope of his coming back. He's saying that our life has meaning and there is something amazing to live for and to wait for. And it's in Christ. It's not in the copies of the things of the past. It's in the one who is the real Savior. And we see in verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, as a reminder perhaps of who we are, of our faith, of our of our. As, as humans, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And that's going to be the, the crux of what we're looking at this morning. So we're going to look at the one life. Verse 27, he says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once. So he's talking about death. And remember, he's using once as a theme here. But he says, but, but to, to say that he's appointed our death to die implies life. If he's appointing our death, he has also appointed our life. Our lives on this earth, your life on this earth is appointed, set apart, destined, planned by our creator, by our God. The gospel is not karma. We don't need to try again. We don't need to die and come back again to try to get it right. Can you imagine how miserable that would be? Thinking that every life you'd have to come back and try to get it right, to get it perfect, finally. Just to get into God's presence. But he's saying that we are appointed to die once. Because we entrust ourselves to the one who is right the only righteous one. If it's appointed, then it's planned. It's not a life of meaningless. Think about this. If your life is planned, if your life has been planned by the Creator, I don't care what situation you are in, if it is appointed, planned, destined by the Creator, then there's meaning. Any plan we have, any plan we make, there's meaning to it because there's thought behind it. Think about the, the plans of the Creator and that plan being your life, your very life on this earth. You are appointed to live and we are not put on earth to simply be born and die. Think about it. That's not even what Christ did. And Christ came to die, to put that sacrifice, to put his sacrifice on the cross. Why didn't he just die as a baby? Let Herod's men do that work. Because there was more to it than just coming and dying. There was living. To share the life with his brothers and sisters. To demonstrate the coming of the kingdom of God in his sufferings, in his joys, in his relationships. Christ's life mattered. Christ's life had value not only for what he was doing, but what he, how he was ministering to us. Because he suffered, because he was tempted in ways just like we were, as the the writer of Hebrews says. Our life is also a life created by God, created by the Father, Son, and Spirit. Made in his image, as Genesis 1.27 says, remind yourself of this. Think about the value we place on our own children who come from us. Imagine the immense value the Father places on you and me. As those made in his image. You are made in God's image. 
You're meaningful. You're valuable because he has made you. We're appointed also for his glory. There's a purpose for our life. To say that we are appointed to die, we are appointed to live as well, and that life comes with value and it comes with purpose. You were bought with a price, Paul says, therefore glorify God in your body. Glorify God, he tells the Corinthians. In a few weeks, hopefully, if COVID clears out, we're going to begin studying the Heidelberg Catechism together in a Sunday school class. Um, Those details will be forthcoming, but that will be coming up, and I'm looking forward to that. And that first question from the Heidelberg Catechism, so many of us are familiar with that. What is my only comfort in life? It's that I'm not my own. But I belong, body and soul, and life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul continues in Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works, to glorify him. He brought us and formed us so that we might live for him and glorify him. What does that mean to how you live? Are you living life as one of value? I think sometimes we could just phone it in and just be done. I think we could be overcome by the culture. I think we could be overcome by our own struggles and feel there's no sense in trying. Brothers and sisters, you are valuable in God's eyes. You have meaning in your life. No matter where you are, there is a purpose to what you are doing. As I preached back in Easter, we are God's symphony. Every part of what we are doing is God's symphony that he is creating. And you know, some of the crazy things about music is there are some really conflicting notes that when they're put into a chord, if you play an A and a B together, it sounds terrible. But if you play the A and the B in the midst of a core of an A chord, it adds this beautiful color, this complexity. That's what music does. It takes all, these, all this dissonance and creates beauty out of it. So wherever you are, you are valuable and you are being used for God's purpose. Your life has meaning. Meditate on this fact. Meditate on this this week. That your life is appointed by our God and our Creator. Now, there's truth to this, too. I mean, there's just a, 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 something we have to face, and that is that as we are appointed to live, we're also appointed to die. And that's the focus of, of, the, of the writer here. He says, as we are appointed once to die. That's been all throughout Scripture. We just studied Ecclesiastes not long ago. All are from dust and all return to dust, Ecclesiastes 3.20. Isaiah says, all flesh is grass. James, for what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Now, none of them are saying that you have no meaning. What they are saying is your life is temporary and that your life is directed by God. What, what James is saying in that context is your life is directed by God. Give yourself to him. Don't, don't try to be the captain of your own soul, but yield to the captain of your soul, the Lord. But our life is temporary, and therefore we are appointed to die. No matter what, no matter what, type of breakthroughs there are, no matter how healthy of a life and, and vibrant of a life that you are living, the death rate is still 100%. Even Betty White. We're all going to die. People you think are just going to live forever. 
but we all die. And it's appointed. The comfort here is it is appointed that we all die. But what the warning here is after that comes judgment. See, if you don't believe the teaching of Jesus, if you don't believe in God the Father, the creator of the universe, if you don't believe there's any such thing as sin or that you have any kind of need for a savior, if you don't believe that you have fallen short of the glory of God because of your lack of being righteous in and of yourself, you can't dodge what is to come. You can't avoid God's judgment. Hebrews, in chapter 10, which we'll see in a couple weeks, he gives this warning. Excuse me. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. If you're dodging Christ today, if you are ignoring Christ, if you're rejecting Christ, the word of God says there is no dodging the judgment of God. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The reason we're in this place, the reason why there's a possibility of judgment is because sin, because of the brokenness. But praise God, those who are in Christ will not face judgment, will not face destruction, because they are in the righteous one. Matthew Henry says, As no wisdom, learning, virtue, wealth, or power can keep one of the human race from death, so nothing can deliver a sinner from being condemned at the day of judgment, except the atoning sacrifice of our great high priest, Jesus nor will one be saved from eternal punishment who despises or nor neglects this great salvation. We've been appointed to die and to judgment. So Christ, verse 28, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Those who are eagerly waiting for him. Think about that. That struck me. When I think about eagerly waiting, it's earnestly waiting, diligently waiting. Think about the, the, the people waiting for the priest to come out of the holy place. Waiting. Eyes on him. Are we gonna, is, is, is God going to accept the offering? Is the priest going to emerge from the most holy place and declare that atonement has been made? Those who are earnestly and diligently waiting for him. Well, I see a few things here. The, 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 the direction of this hope that our eyes are on Christ, that our eyes are constantly on Christ, on our high priest, waiting for him to come. The cost of this hope. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, says Paul, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. 
waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. The cost of this hope, well, the cost for Christ was it cost him his life. It cost him severe suffering. It cost him giving up everything and coming here and living with us, living with people. But also costs his people. The cost of this hope is that you're giving yourself to him. There's a cost involved. He says, those who follow me will suffer. There is a cost that we face the hope of Christ, but we face it understanding that we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, self-disciplined life, upright and godly lives in this present age. What do you feel about Christ? How much do you believe about Christ? What do you believe about Christ? I'm not asking you if you're a Christian. I'm asking you how much you believe in Christ. I'm asking how deep your faith is. And do you count yourself among those who are eagerly waiting for our Savior? Please know this is a reflection that I had and had to deal with as I'm going through this. How much do I believe in Christ? And what am I willing to do for him? I think this whole thing is about our faith in Christ. And as we go into the next chapters of Hebrews, we're going to be dealing more and more with our faith. Challenged, I hope, in our faith. And hopefully growing in our faith together. Remember that there is also a glory of our hope. Believing to the end, persevering in our belief. Paul says this, but our citizenship is in heaven. Those of us who are in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talks about waiting as well. Waiting, who will transform Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. There is a glory to this hope. Think about where you are now. There is a glory coming. There is a, com- there is a coming glory that will transform our bodies. To take away all the mess. Take away all the brokenness. And transform us to be who he is. To be like him. Like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Matthew Henry again. The believer knows that his redeemer lives. And he shall see him. Here's the faith and patience of the church, of all sincere believers. Hence is their continual prayer as the fruit and expression of their faith. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this eager waiting for our Lord, it is a matter of our faith. Take some time this week to meditate. Where is your faith weak? How would you say the condition of your faith is in Christ. And please don't hear me condemning you or 
or, or pushing on you. We all struggle. I believe we all struggle. But I also believe that there are those who don't struggle as much where we can come together and, and, and learn from one another and encourage one another. That's the importance of fellowship and to pray for one another. If your faith is struggling, share it with a brother. Share it with a sister. Share it with me. I'd be happy to talk with you about it. Let's take this week. Let's take time to to, to meditate and ask the Father to reveal where our faith is weak, that we may grow, that we may grow and be eagerly waiting for our Savior, and that we may believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with full assurance, knowing that he will one day come to take us in salvation, or take us and bring us to full salvation, transforming our lowly bodies into his glorious image of what he created us to be. May we wait eagerly together for our coming Savior. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. You are our great high priest who appointed us once to die, once to live, but also once to be received by you for those who are found in you. Lord, those who, are, who don't know you who are here today, I pray that they would come to know you. I pray that these words would pierce their heart and you would break through anything that I mumbled or jumbled through here, but that you would break through to the hearts, Lord, and save those who are wandering and call back the ones who have gone astray. Deepen our faith in you, Lord. Bind us together. Through Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.